0: Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise, and this is part two of The Toy Box. If you haven't listened to part one, you're going to be a little bit lost, so go back and listen to last week's episode. But just in case you're like me and read the last chapter of a book first, yes, I know that's a crazy thing to do, but I do it. I want to briefly give the same warning that I did in part one. This is a difficult case. If you are triggered by the discussion of sexual and physical abuse and a brief discussion of suicide that I will timestamp in the notes, this is not the appropriate episode for you. I want to start this episode by being a little bit vulnerable with you. Someone asked me after part one why I chose to cover this case after expressing numerous times how much it bothered me, and to be honest, I had to sit with that for a bit. The truth is, this case is incredibly upsetting for me, not because I've ever experienced what these victims and survivors experienced, but because God blessed and cursed me with my ADD brain, a wild imagination, and a tendency to feel a little bit too much. And the horror that these women faced, it eats me up. I don't tell the details of these cases for shock and awe value. That has never been my desire for this podcast. Frankly, a lot of what I research, I never end up discussing here, because I think there's a fine line in telling the stories of the victims truthfully, but also in making sure we don't only remember these people for the brutality they met in their last moments. The women that I talk about in this case, even those who have remained unknown and unnamed, are not defined by what happened to them or what they endured. They're mothers, daughters, sisters, and friends who have a life and loves and interests and They should be remembered as such. But I do share these cases that trouble me, because there is something that can be learned from them. If you listened to the episode where I covered the case of Sylvia Likens, you know that after her death, laws were passed that help protect children to this day. In this case, I hate to tell you, I don't know if we will ever find that same glimmer of hope, something good to come out of such pure evil. But I think there is something to be learned from the perpetrators of these despicable acts too. Awareness for the world around us, more understanding of the fragility of the human psyche, and maybe as professionals try to understand more about the psychological profile of these predators, more can be done to stop them. I won't pretend for a moment I have the education or knowledge to aid in that pursuit, but I can use my voice to spread awareness, to keep these victim stories alive, because they don't deserve to be forgotten. So this is why I share these cases, even the cases that haunt me long after the research is done and the episode has been recorded, because my discomfort is minimal in comparison to what these women went through, and their story deserves to be told. With that, this is part two of The Toy Box. When we left off, Cindy Hendy and David Ray Parker had just been arrested. Police had entered their home, and it was clear, right as they walked in the door, that Cynthia's story was true. There was the bed, the chain, and the waste bucket that she had used during her captivity. But police couldn't have had an idea of what was waiting for them when they entered the trailer behind his home. Inside this heavily padlocked and soundproof trailer were handcuffs, chains, that homemade gynecological chair and homemade sexual torture devices. I am not talking about the items that you buy online to spice things up with your partner that arrive in little unmarked packages. No. David had made some truly horrifying instruments. He had fashioned large phallic shapes with nails that jutted out at the base of them, presumably to cause damage to the woman's sexual organs and legs as it was used. There was a wooden box lined with padding with a hole for the neck that would be placed on the woman's head and she would have restricted breathing and not be able to see or hear what was happening to her, dulling her other senses to intensify the pain and fear. He even had constructed a lined coffin. Not a whole lot is known about the exact use of this coffin. But on his recorded tape to his victims, he mentioned that sometimes they kept more than one girl at a time. So it's believed this coffin was either used as another deprivation tactic or that when one girl was in the toy box, the other would be kept in the coffin. There was also numerous syringes and surgical equipment, as well as medical textbooks. It's believed that these were used to help aid him in making sure that the victims, while experiencing all of this pain, were able to recover from their injuries and kept alive as long as possible for his pleasure in the toolbox. Every inch of the toy box was covered with David Ray Parker's drawings of women being sexually tortured, But even worse was that camcorder above the chair that had been used to capture loads of videos with hours and hours of his and his accomplices' assaults on their victims. All in all, it's believed that David Ray Parker spent over $100,000 outfitting the toy box to meet his sinister needs. To even the most seasoned police and FBI detectives, what they saw in the toy box was enough to haunt their dreams. One such detective was Patricia Rust. By her mid-30s, she had become a well-regarded agent for the FBI after serving as a U.S. Army captain and gaining her degree in criminology. She was tasked with documenting every piece of evidence inside the toy box, drawing diagrams of every item inside. She also had to watch hours upon hours of his self-recorded videos. One such video shows an unidentified woman who is tied down to the chair, duct tape is covering her mouth, and David Ray Parker is dressed head to toe in a black robe and black face mask, and he is in the toy box with another unknown person who also takes part in his sadistic acts. David used a cattle prod to internally burn the poor woman to the point that blood streams from her mouth and ears, and eventually her body goes limp. After four straight days of watching and documenting the horrors that David inflicted on his victims, At 2 o'clock in the morning on April 10, 1999, police responded to the apartment of Agent Rust, who had died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. I won't pretend to know if Agent Rust had a history of depression or suicidal ideations, and the FBI was pretty quick to issue a statement that her suicide was not connected to her isolated days documenting the evil inside of David's toy box, but I'm sorry. I think it's very safe to say that being exposed to that kind of imagery certainly compounded whatever Agent Rust may or may not have been struggling with. To me, Agent Rust is yet another victim of David Ray Parker, and I hope she rests in peace. Unfortunately, just like in his journals, David was not interested in the identity of these women. He never named them in his journals, only what he did to them, where and how many times, and in the videos, the victim's identity was concealed in some way. But on one video, a tattoo could be seen on a woman's calf, a tattoo that would help investigators identify another woman who survived David Ray Parker and his accomplices. Kelly Van Cleve and her husband Patrick Murphy were a young couple who had recently gotten married. They had gotten into a blowout fight when Patrick felt that Kelly was making excuses to not be intimate with him. When in fact, Kelly actually had a medical condition that made intercourse painful to her at times. In the heat of the fight with her husband, Kelly left the house to go to a girlfriend's house to cool off for a moment. The two ended up going to a woman's house named Cassandra, who had been pretty open about the fact that she wanted Patrick to herself. And somehow, after Kelly confronted Cassandra about this, all three of them went to a local bar called Rocky's Lounge in Truth and Consequences. How you go from confronting a woman about trying to get physical with your man to girls' night out is beyond me, but off they went. Kelly had agreed to be the DD for the group, and so even though she was at the bar, she chose not to consume alcohol. Shortly after getting there, they ran into their mutual friend across the pool table, a name you might recognize from part one. Jessie Ray, David's daughter. As the night was winding down, Kelly had let a male friend drive himself home in her car after Jesse promised to give Kelly a ride home. Now, if you practice sobriety or you've ever done sober October, hi, that's me, or sober January, you are probably familiar with the experience Kelly had while at the bar. Instead of respecting her choice to not partake, it kept getting pressed on her. So after some teasing and ridicule from Jesse, Kelly agreed to have just one beer. She began to feel intoxicated and woozy and thought maybe Cassandra had done something to her drink. So she turned to her friend Jesse asking to please leave. Now I've got to interject here. This just adds another level of cruelty to this situation. Many of us have experienced having our drinks spiked. It happens way more often than people think. In fact, in a study by alcohol.org, they surveyed 969 people and found that 44% of men and 56% of women unknowingly consumed spiked food or drinks. Out of that group, 37% reported that their drinks or food had been spiked on multiple occasions. After being in the nightlife industry as a bartender, I would suspect this number is higher because many people probably wake up thinking they just had too much to drink and blacked out so please be safe out there. Don't accept drinks from others. The cute guy across the bar who wants to buy you a drink, great. But watch the bartender pour it and then do not put it down to dance or go to the bathroom. Just never leave your drink unattended. Sadly, it's the cruel reality of the world that we live in. But the reason I say there's an added level of cruelty in this is because Kelly turned to her friend Jessie, thinking she would protect her get her home safely where she could sleep it off or get medical help if necessary. Kelly pretty rationally assumed that Cassandra, who she had had conflict with earlier that night, was maybe the person with a reason to do this. But it was Jessie, a monster hiding in plain sight, pretending to be a good friend to her, that not only drugged her, but was doing so in order to offer her up to evil incarnate, her father, David Ray Parker. Jessie told her that she would bring Kelly home, but she just needed to stop by her dad's house quick. And while they were there, Kelly could get some coffee and try to sober up a bit before getting back home. That would be the last thing Kelly would remember from the evening. What Kelly didn't know is that when she didn't return the next day, her husband Patrick was in a tizzy and he's calling around and finally he finds out that she had been at the bar with her girlfriends. Well, one girlfriend and then, you know, Cassandra. Kelly had a history of substance abuse issues and had promised her husband when they got married that she would leave all of that in the past. Patrick assumed that after their fight, she had turned back to drugs and alcohol as a way to cope with the fight that happened earlier that night. But three days later, at 8 o'clock in the morning, David Ray Parker drove Kelly to the home that she shared with her husband and her in-laws. He got out of the vehicle and stood beside it while Kelly, wearing the same clothes that she had left the house in, barefoot and covered in bruises with the watch she wore and wedding ring missing from her finger approached the house. Patrick came outside demanding to know where Kelly had been. He asked her over and over and over, where have you been? What have you been doing? And Kelly kept telling him she had no idea. She couldn't remember anything. David then tells Patrick that he had found Kelly stumbling across the beach and just wanted to make sure she got home safely Well, Patrick assumed Kelly had been out partying, maybe even cheating on him, and demanded that she get off his property immediately and that he was going to divorce her. David offered to give Kelly a ride to her friend's house. Confused, bruised, and heartbroken, Kelly got back into the car with David Ray Parker. For the next five years, Kelly had horrible nightmares and was struggling. Her husband had followed through with his threat and gotten their marriage annulled just days after Kelly showed back up. A few days later, he went on to marry Cassandra. So there's that. Spoiler alert. That marriage didn't end well for him. She stole all his money during his deployment and left him. A real winner, that Cassandra woman. But imagine what Kelly's life must have been like. She can't explain what happened to those missing three days. No one believes her that she hadn't fallen back into drugs and alcohol. And every night when she falls asleep, she is plagued by these horrible nightmares and this voice that haunts her. However, when the news broke of the arrest of David Ray Parker and his awful instructional tape, ending with that description of how he would drug the victim so she couldn't remember what happened to her, Patrick's mom watched the news coverage and couldn't help but think back to five years prior when her daughter-in-law, who also resided in Truth and Consequences, went missing for three days with no memory of what happened. It couldn't be a coincidence, and so trusting her intuition, she placed a call and a tip with the FBI. The FBI ended up contacting Kelly, who was now living in Colorado at the time, asking if she had any tattoos. When Kelly described the tattoo on her calf, the FBI had her come in immediately. In shock and complete horror, the FBI showed Kelly the tape of the woman with the tattoo, it was then that she knew that the voice that had haunted her dreams was the recording of David Ray Parker's voice on that cassette tape, that the traumatic nightmares that had plagued her life for five years were not just bad dreams. They were suppressed memories because as that tape played, Kelly watched what that monster had done to her, and all the memories came flooding back. She watched as David Ray Parker raped her and knew her friend Jesse had delivered her to him. The fight that Kelly and her husband Patrick had gotten in about her making excuses for not wanting to have sex with him, well it turns out that medical condition might be what saved her life. Kelly had what's called a tilted uterus. To some this never poses a problem, but for her it caused her pain even during consensual sex. But it also made it pretty much impossible for David to use his homemade torture devices on her. She remembered David expressing his frustration of her anatomy multiple times. She wasn't useful to him, he couldn't use his torture devices on her in the way that he intended, and so he grabbed a syringe and injected something into her arm, later returning to her home, probably getting pleasure out of watching her husband and her fight when she couldn't remember where she had been. The last survivor that we know a little about is a woman named Angelica Montaño, who had worked as a sex worker in New Mexico. Angelica came forward after David's arrest, Cindy Hendy, Ray's girlfriend, told Angelica that she could borrow some cake mix and stop by the house to pick it up. You see, Angelica was not just a sex worker, someone to be seen as less than. No, Angelica was a mom, known around town for being incredibly kind, and had a boyfriend who had a birthday coming up that she wanted to make a special birthday cake for. So when Cindy offered to let her use some cake mix, she jumped at the chance. This certainly gives new meaning to borrowing a cup of sugar from a neighbor. When Angelica arrived, she was attacked and held captive by the couple. It seems she was able to convince Cindy and Ray to take pity on her because she had young children at home. Angelica even convinced them that she would never go to the police as she enjoyed their time together. Obviously, she didn't. But Angelica was so smart to do this. I don't know how she found the strength to play a mind game with David and convince this man who specialized in psychological mind games that she had liked the brutality they inflicted on her, and she beat him at his own game. She is a survivor and clearly a mother determined to get back to her children. And Cindy and David let her go, but not before dosing her up with their special concoction of drugs, and they discarded her alongside the highway. You won't believe this, but the first person that Angelica came across on the highway was an off-duty officer, After flagging him down, she told him what happened, and her story seemed so far-fetched, and she was clearly out of sorts, let's just say, from the drugs that they had forced upon her, that the officer didn't believe her. Instead, he just offered to give her a ride to the next bus stop. When she later contacted the police, they didn't believe her either. And I don't understand this. I've never understood this. I have come across this in a couple of cases now. I understand that detectives are probably stretched very thin. But what is the worst that can come out of doing just a little follow-up, a little rat-a-tat-tat on the door of the accused person, regardless of who it is that is coming forward and their background? It is infuriating. During the course of the police and FBI investigation, Jesse Ray would also be arrested and someone else. Someone we haven't met yet, named Dennis Yancey, would also be arrested. Dennis was rough around the edges and had a pretty checkered past, to say the least, and he often partied with Jesse, Cindy, and David. At some point, David had trusted Dennis enough to allow him to take part in the toy box tortures. When Dennis and his girlfriend, Sylvia Marie Parker, a homeless 22-year-old single mother, broke up, Dennis didn't take this all too well. He wanted his revenge for the rejection. So instead of, you know, moving on, they decided to abduct her and keep her as a sex slave in the toy box. After God knows how long, under David's orders, Ray confessed that he had strangled Sylvia to death. And then as David looked on, Dennis buried her body. It's not too far-fetched to think that David made Dennis do this as some form of blackmail. Uh, if you ever tell anyone about us at the toy box, I will bring you down with me for murder situation. However, when police went to the location that Dennis said he buried her body, nothing was found. Dennis and the police believe that David returned later to move the body so that if Dennis ever got caught or confessed, there would be no evidence to corroborate his story. Sylvia Marie Parker has not been seen since July 5th, 1997. At this point, authorities had Dennis, Jesse, Cindy, and David in custody and three survivors ready to testify and bring these people down. Dennis Yancey spilled the beans about taking part in the torture of women and killing at least one. When FBI agents offered Cindy Hendy a plea deal to get a reduced sentence if she turned on Ray, she took it (laughs) because these hoes aren't loyal. I'm sorry. She disclosed that she guessed that David had killed dozens of women, personally knowing of about 14 that he had killed. When asked how he disposed of the bodies, she said that David would remove their internal organs and fill the stomach cavity with rocks or weights so it sank to the bottom of the waters of Elephant Butte Lake. In part one, we discussed how deep that lake is in some areas and the silt clay that would encase anything that sank to its depths. Even after multiple extensive searches, no bodies were ever recovered except for pieces of a female leg bone that remains unidentified today. David Ray Parker, during the course of the interviews, never broke. He would not admit to anything, instead saying that he had hired sex workers to consensually engage in this type of sexual activity, that they were all willing participants, and that he did this not only because he enjoyed it, but because he made a killing off selling his home videotapes to others who shared in his fantasies, which is sick to think about because if this is true and there is evidence to back up that, yes, he did sell these videos, where are they now and, like, whose hands are they in? I have read the FBI's interviews with David, and it's clear he is very intelligent. He is quick to make sure he never says he commits the acts that they keep pressing him about, just describes in detail these quote-unquote fantasies he had, but insists that they were all just that, just fantasies. It's also a bit alarming how he will make reference to specific kidnapping or rape cases down to knowing the attorney's names that prosecuted them, like this man had done his research. He even says quite a few times that while he's innocent of what they accused him with, he is more than willing to discuss these fantasies to help The police understand people like him, people that need to be stopped before they follow through with their evil fantasies. I have to admit, there was points where I had to remind myself while reading them what this man was capable of, what he did to so many women throughout the course of his life. Because he comes across at times during the interview, cool as a cucumber, candid in his answers, seemingly disgusted by his own thoughts that he knows are immoral, And he's just there to help prevent anything like this from happening to others. It's literally no wonder he got away with it for so long. Even with the FBI pressing him, he is so cool, calm, and collected. At points, he's even making jokes with the officers. It's wild to read. But underneath that cool exterior is probably quite a brilliant mind who used his intelligence to inflict pain that is beyond comprehension and to manipulate the people around him into doing his bidding and keeping his secret. Since there was no physical evidence tying him to a murder, the FBI charged him with the crimes committed against Kelly Van Cleve, Cynthia Vigil, and Angelica Montano. Unfortunately, the judge made what I think was a really poor decision in ruling to separate the three cases, meaning there had to be three different trials. Had they put the three together, there would have been a lot more evidence that could have been admitted, and the jury would have heard how similar the woman's experiences were, and maybe Kelly's case would not have ended in a mistrial when two jurors felt her story was not believable. I cannot believe that poor woman had her husband not believe her, divorce her, haunted by these memories for five years, just to be told by a jury of her peers, we don't believe you. Thankfully, the second jury got it right and found David guilty on all counts in her case. After his conviction, David wanted to talk, but not talk about the crimes he committed. Oh, no, he wanted to talk to the media. And in an interview, this man has the audacity to say this. I feel right. On that day, Ray admitted to us he had been involved with women but denied committing any crimes. He enjoyed it. Has he ever tortured anyone? no did he kidnap anyone no so did Ray ever do anything against the wishes of a sex partner no I get my excitement from making a woman happy my trailer had numerous sex toys in it of different types all different fetishes I got pleasure out of the woman getting pleasure uh, I did what they wanted me to do I don't know who allowed him a microphone to be able to make that statement, but it made me want to punch him right in the throat so he could never speak again. Tragically, Angelica would never be able to testify against her captors. She had never been able to get over her experience and turn to drugs to cope. She passed away before she ever got the chance to testify against David Ray Parker. When the second trial for Cynthia v. Hill was set to begin, again, David Ray Parker continued to claim his innocence That is, until the FBI seemed to hit him in perhaps the only tiny shred of humanity in him and convinced him to trade his life for his daughters. If he pled guilty to the charges in this case, his daughter would receive a dramatically reduced sentence. David accepted the deal, and in 2001, two years after Cynthia Vigil escaped and brought David's evilness to the spotlight, he was sentenced to 223 years In prison for his crimes. As for David's daughter, Jessie, she was charged with kidnapping and criminal sexual penetration. She pled no contest and received a 30 month sentence with an additional five years to be served on probation. Which means, yes, Jessie is out of jail, has been for quite some time, and living her life as a member of society, only serving less than three years behind bars. So in the off chance that she hears this podcast, I will leave it to you listeners to speculate on my thoughts on this decision. I will say, however, all of the surviving victims did agree to making this plea deal. I imagine for Cynthia, it might have even been a relief that because he pled guilty, she didn't have to testify against him and relive in front of strangers the awful things that happened to her. Dennis Yancey played guilty to the murder of Marie Parker and was sentenced to 30 years in prison, but he would only serve 11 before being released in 2011. He didn't make it on the outside too long, because three months later, he had already violated his parole, landing his ass back in jail, where he belongs in my opinion, and because he violated the rules of his parole, he had to serve the remainder of his original sentence. But Dennis Yancey, too, is a free man, since his release in 2021. Cindy Hendy was sentenced to 36 years for her crimes and went before the parole board early in 2017, where they granted her parole. And since July of 2019, she has also been a free woman. What became of David Ray Parker? Well, It kind of follows the trend that we have going on here of people not really having to do the time, pay for the crimes they committed, and getting off early, but in a little bit more of a karmic way. Because on May 28, 2002, while awaiting transfer to prison to serve his sentence, David Ray Parker had a heart attack and died. He never served a day of the 223 years that he was sentenced in an actual state prison. I wish there was a way to wrap up this case with that glimmer of hope that we talked about in the beginning, but maybe it can be found in the survivors of his crimes. Cynthia Vihil went on to start a nonprofit assisting aid to vulnerable people and sex workers in New Mexico, and you can check that out at www.streetsafenewmexico.org, which I will also have linked in the show notes. And the little information I can find about Kelly seems that she went on to remarry, a guy hopefully a lot better than Patrick, and become a mother, and I just hope they both find the peace they deserve. What incredibly brave women. It frustrates me, though, that I'm wrapping up this case and there are so many families, so many victims that will never have the peace they deserve, as David's secrets seem to have died with him. The FBI did release hundreds of photos of jewelry found in his home, believing to be belonging to his victims. I have linked that in the show notes and would encourage friends or family members of Missing People to please take a look through it. It is believed that David Ray Parker, who was never convicted of a murder, was responsible for the kidnapping, torture, and the possible murders of over 40 victims. That would make him one of the most prolific serial killers in United States history right behind Samuel Little and the Green River killer, Gary Ridgway. With that, I am closing out this case. I need to go watch Finding Nemo, touch some grass, play with my dog. And I would encourage listeners to do something to take care of themselves a bit after listening to this case. I will be back next week with an episode that I promise will be a little easier to digest and suitable for all. Let's share a laugh. I think we all deserve it after this case, don't we? As always, you can support this podcast by rating it on whatever streaming platform you listen to, leaving a review, and sharing an episode with a friend. I'll be back next Sunday, but as always, until then.